started. Uh, we're going to try to wrap up last week. If there's anybody here who wasn't uh, here last week, let me know because we have notes. Uh, you'll need the notes for last week's and this week's. So if you weren't here, I have one. We're here. Follow. Take a second. Thank follow along. Yeah. Thank you. Yep. Uh, we are so we're starting on page eighty, and we're, like I said, we're just going to wrap up the this session on the local church, and then uh, we'll move right into chapter uh, chapter eight, temptation. So, apparently, I was here last week. Yeah. Well, you weren't here. I was in the nursery. Thank you. Thank you, sir. All right, so top of page 80, ministering in the local church. So um, attending a Bible-based church is good. Uh, becoming a member is even better. So not obey, uh, you're not obeying Scripture until you actively serve in the local church. Throughout Scripture, every believer is commanded to actively serve the Lord through the local church. So every member of ministry. Sometimes I, I know... That's one of the big things here. So coming, so the church, some of the churches I've been at in the past, this is not really emphasized. Uh, there's like an encouragement, you know, everybody should serve if they can. Here it's a real, uh, there's a real big push to make it, you know, this be a case, every member of ministry. Uh, Hebrews 10.25, it, um, the command that it gives is don't abandon or don't give up on meeting together. So you want to be meeting consistently. And the reason that it gives is because the day of the Lord is approaching. So the the second coming of Christ. This is not talking about the rapture. When we talk about the day of the Lord, we're talking about when the Lord comes back in judgment. So that was actually the the impetus to for the, the writer of Hebrews... The why he gave that we should not abandon meeting together is because judgment, the day of the Lord is coming. The judgment is, 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 you know, sometime coming. And so you want to be making sure you're abandoning, you're not abandoning your meeting with one another. So while it's true that this passage commands the believer to attend church, uh, and there's no specific number given, it requires much more than just showing up. So the previous verse, Hebrews 10.24, commands you to be active in the church. It says to consider how we may spur one another towards love and good deeds. Spur one another towards love and good deeds. And so here's a a real good question to kind of think about here for yourself. And we won't answer this now. So it says, how might you be such a catalyst, encourage other other Christians to love and serve the Lord. So this is something we've talked about. If you're a part of a community group, uh, you know we've we hit on this topic regu- uh, on a regular basis in the community groups. How do we encourage each other? How do we encourage the other believers? How do we encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ to serve, to love? Uh, you know, how do we um, do that for each other to try to build the body up? And so I think partly this this actually serves as a strong rebuke to this idea that you can just show up on a Sunday morning and that's going to be all you do. You know, and I, uh, so um, sometimes you'll hear, you know, you'll see that maybe people normally don't say something like that. You almost will never hear someone just say that, you know, I just show up and I just want to sit in the pew. 
Uh, but the idea is there. Sometimes you just see people who aren't really involved in much, and they just kind of show, uh, you know, show up on Sundays, and you don't see them doing much, not getting involved. Um, but really, the, the New Testament speaks to the fact that we all need to be involved uh, with with the church if we're spurring one another towards love and good deeds. So perhaps the most important passage regarding the ministry of believers in the local church is found in Ephesians 4, 11 through 12. And uh, that what it asks, what is this uh, gift? Uh, what is this responsibility that the pastor teacher has been given? And it's the equip his people for works of service. That is work of ministry, to equip the people of the church to help that, that facilitate that process towards working in ministry, works of service. And uh, so we have, um, we won't read this whole passage, but I think that last sentence there in italics is really good. The most sacred duty of the pastor is to get the work of the ministry done through others. So, you know, sometimes when you're an early believer, or depending on what kind of church you grew up in, or the size of the church maybe, you know, it's just paid, you know, the people who are paid to do ministry are expected to get everything done. But I, I think this, um, you know, this is a, a good reminder to us that th- the pastor's duty is to actually get everyone in the church to get the ministry done. That's one of his main goals. That's one of his main duties is to get all of us involved, to get us to do the work in the ministry. It's not just uh, those who are paid to do it. Um, so this is another well, we won't do that that first top 2 Timothy 2.2 2, this ministry chain um, that's something I'll let you guys look up on your own uh, and there's this little section on the church a parachurch uh, that last sentence um, last sentence there in that whole block your loyalty your effort and your financial support should be invested in the ministry that the Lord has raised near your home. This is their local church. And so I've actually talked to people who I'm close with, and you know they think, you know, we live in a time where you can be listening to people like John MacArthur on a regular basis. You know, and I listen to, you know, I listen to his, he's a good teacher. But he doesn't take the place of your local church. And so sometimes you will talk to somebody who thinks maybe they've had a conflict in the church. Or maybe they, so for some reason they feel like you know, I don't want to, I don't like that church. I'm, I'm just going to stay home and I'll pray by myself and I can just listen to this teacher that I really like or I'll listen to the sermons online. Uh, but really, you can't, uh, you can't replace the local church with this, with an organization or the parachurch organization. So a final argument for your active ministries in the local church is the fact that you, like every other believer, possess a spiritual gift. And I think this is important. This is one of the things that really struck me as I uh, have I, that I've researched the topic on my own, uh, God has given you a particular ability that perhaps no one else in the church uh, has. Furthermore, your spiritual gift was not given for your sake, but for the church's. And this is what First Corinthians twelve seven talks about. Without you, the local church will not function as God des- designed it to. It was stated several times that you need the church. It is equally true, however, that the church needs you. And so this is a this is an idea that you don't. Is not pushed as often, but I think it's really important. If we all have some type of spiritual gifting, if each one of us in this room has been equipped by the Holy Spirit with some spiritual gift, 
The spiritual gift is not for ourselves. It's not for just to express in your family or people you're close. That spiritual gift that you have, when we all have something that God has given us, some ability, that gift is designed for you to be used, for you to use in the context of the local church. And so we, we have a responsibility to use that uh, because we want to build up each other. So God gave us that gift for the building up of others, uh, not for our benefit. So there's a corporate uh, corporate goal with the endowment of that gift. So any questions on any of that material? Of course, there's a, you know, there's that. The one thing I was thinking about as we are, as I was going through this lesson is, you know, he raises the topic of spiritual gifting. Then you, th- first thing that pops in my head, well, then, how do you make sure everyone knows what their spiritual gift is or things like that? But so that's that's a separate topic. But um, the Bible gives the listing of gifts, so you can at least look through that. Uh, as he says on page eighty-two, the list contains at least one gift that God has has especially given uh, to you for use for Him. Which of the gifts listed do you believe you have? So that's one of the things you're going to, you know, just look through on your own. Um, but as I said, it raises the question, what is my spiritual gift? How do I know? What if I don't know what my spiritual gift is? Is it just a matter of something I'm good at? So if I'm a teacher in my vocation, does that mean my spiritual gift is teaching? So I need to express teaching? Or if I'm, if I'm a musician... Outside in the you know outside the church, does that mean my spiritual gift that I need to be expressing for the local church is is music? You know, is there a, a, always a correlation between what you do out in the world? So if I'm an accountant, do I somehow have this gift of you know service to that in that extent to the local church? Uh, you know, so sometimes yes, sometimes no, because I don't think that's always the case because. Um, you know, I, I think even here we see because a lot of our musicians aren't musicians out and uh, don't work as full time musicians, that kind of thing. And uh, without getting too far into it, uh, one of the best ways to understand what your spiritual gift is, if you're not sure, if you've questioned why, what gift do I have, is actually just start getting involved with different ministries. You know, it's God will manifest that gift as you get involved with people. So it's a good way to actually find out is as you get involved with the, with different ministries in the church over time, either you will recognize or other people. You know, there's people sometimes I know in our community group, there's someone in our group, we were talking about this, and it's, it was obvious to everyone in the group that this person had this gift for praying, of prayer. You know, she would pray for people, always like, well, I'll pray for you. You know, always encouraging people through talking about prayer. Pray, you know, first thing out of her mouth would always be, you know, we should pray about that. So it was clear to everybody else. It wasn't clear to her that she had any spiritual gifting or what her spiritual gifting was. So sometimes God may not, it may not be clear to you, but as you get involved with people in the body, uh, your gift will manifest itself. So, uh, and then that second question, how might you use it effectively? That's another one of the things you want to be thinking about. Um, so we'll, that's the wrap up on that local church topic. Any questions on that before we move on? Comments? Alright. So, chapter 8, page 86, right into temptation. So,
Life of the Christian is filled with temptation. I think every one of us here could attest to that fact. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you can attest to the fact that the life of a believer is one that is filled with temptation. Every believer experiences a constant battle, sin or not to sin. Thankfully, God has promised forgiveness for those who sin and later confess it. Yet focusing on confession of sin instead of purity from sin is dangerous. And I think that's, a, that's an important point. Focusing on just confession in, instead of purity is dangerous. Like building a hospital at a cliff's bottom rather than a guardrail at its top, God's desire for you is that you not sin. So let's work on making that idea a reality. So 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 7 is a key passage regarding your lifestyle as a Christian. So it says, starting out, please, we need to please God. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 1, it says, As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. So he wants, he's, Paul's attesting to the fact that this is what Christians are expected to do, please God. Secondly, that your holiness, that his sanctification is God's will. So in verse 3 it says, It is God's will that you should be sanctified. And the particular issue that the Thessalonians are struggling with, or questioning Paul about, he's, he addresses in the second part of the verse, that you should avoid sexual immorality. But the bigger issue is that God's will for us is that we're holy. To use your body in a way that is holy and honorable, verse 4 says that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Uh, the next sec- next bullet point there, that your lifestyle and purity should not be like the unsaved. That there should be a mark, marked difference between you and the unbeliever. Verse 5, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. So people being driven by their passions is a mark of the, the unbeliever, the ungodly lifestyle. That God has called you into holiness, verse 7. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Kind of stressing that. God has called us to a holy life. So, And this is an important part. So there's kind of one of the overarching points of this section is the, we want to get on early, is the, uh, the gravity of sin. And so that's what this box highlights. So the most Christians take temptation lightly because they take sin lightly. Martin Lloyd Jones laments, "There is no doubt, whatever uh, there is no doubt, whatever that an inadequate view of sin is the chief cause of a lack of holiness and sanctification, and indeed of most of the false teaching with respect to sanctification." So then the question is, why is sin so tra- tragic? And it gives these reasons: it offends God, it grieves God, it breaks your daily communion with God, and it destroys the life of the believer. Uh, so there was a quote I wanted to read for you guys I thought it was good talking about the gravity of sin it says here but we don't realize the gravity of this evil our souls are so callous by sin that we do not sense its infinite offenseness to God as Packer observes that, that the biblical word for sin portray it in a variety of different ways as rebellion against our rightful owner so this is talking about how the Bible uses sin Rebellion against our rightful owner and ruler, as trans- transgression of the bounds he set, as missing the mark, as breaking the law, as defiling ourselves in his sight, so making ourselves unfit for his company, as embracing folly by shutting our ears to his wisdom, and as incurring guilt before his judgment seat. So these pictures 
reveal several distinct aspects of our sin, but the common denominator they share is their Godwardness. That is, all sin, even so-called little sins, are evil because they are ultimately committed against our infinite holy God. When we sin against God, we spurn his honor, preferring other things to his glory. Even when we sin against other human beings, and this is important, we simultaneously assault God's glory by hurting those who bear his image. So James condemns us for using our tongues to curse others because they are people who are made in the likeness of God. And it talks about David's uh, sin against with Bathsheba. And what does David say? Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, in Psalm 51. Every sin against a human being is also a sin against God. Egotism, lust, bitterness, gossip, slander, racial prejudice, violence, devaluing of human life, those are sins against God's image bearers and therefore sins against God himself. So that's, I think that's, it's a helpful way to think about why sin is, is a serious issue. Because ultimately, you know, there is, we think, we want to separate sin into like, you know, well, you know, I'm not hurting anybody. But the reality is all of our sin is against God, even if we, we don't see it that way. That's how the Bible portrays it. So is God concerned about holiness? Yes. In the word of in the words of First Peter 1, 15 through 16, he has called you to be holy in every area of your life, lifestyle. According to verse 16, uh, God, uh, how holy does God require you to be? And it, he requires us to be as holy as he is. To be as to be like God. Top of page eighty-seven. Though living a life that is set apart from sin is considered quaint or puritanical by many, it is demanded by God. And I think this is probably the case with most of you. As you, uh, we were talking about with, you know, you interact with people on Facebook, you interact with your friends, coworkers, family that is not saved, classmates. This idea of being holy or living a holy life you know, at best seems quaint by the world. It says you are to be perpetually put off, you are to be perpetually putting off sin and putting on righteousness. This is the important idea, putting off of sin and putting on of righteousness, this training. It is inevitable that you will be tempted to sin. So scripture speaks of two different types of sin, Two, excuse me, two different kinds of temptation, both of which are addressed in James 1. So there's the first kind of temptation, uh, trials or difficult search situations, and the second temptation, uh, as it talks about, is enticement, baiting. And what we think we, if we, to try to understand this, um, you can answer that first blank yourself, but uh, in that second blank where it says both senses of temptation are present in scripture as tests intended to prove and improve one's character. So the, to think, I think one way of helping us to think about these two different types of temptation is uh, what we just went through with Pastor Ken in the Job series. So in, right away with Job, we see the trials that Job went through, losing his family, uh, losing his wealth, his health. These are the first first level of trials. These things that you go through that are just, you know, have nothing to do with uh, you, some sin that you've committed. They're just situations that you've gone through that are trying you, that actually make you question at times your relationship or you question God's goodness. But then there's the other kind. These types of things where, you know, some sin that, 
you know, continues to, whether it's uh, how you react, you may be reacting in anger, uh, some type of sexual in, uh, immorality, whatever that is, this is that second kind. And this is what, when Job's wife says, curse God and die. Why don't you just curse God and die, Job? You know, that's this kind of, you know, you know, question your relationship with God um, type situation. So thinking about the two different kinds. So we move immediately to reasons for temptation. For centuries, even millennia, people have discussed a perplexing, discussed a perplexing question. Why would God allow temptation? God certainly could have created Adam and Eve without the possibility of sinning. Why did God allow temptation? As strange as it sounds, temptation brings with it many benefits. So you may have thought about that. Why, why did God create a situation where Adam and Eve fell? Why did he have to allow... Because this is actually the question of evil. If you, if you ever talk about someone, talk about uh, faith with someone who's an unbeliever, on a pretty regular basis, it, it, it'll come back to this question of evil. Why did God create the world he did. So you're telling me you want me to listen to you talk about a God who uh, allows babies to die or has allowed this tragedy into my life. What kind of God allows these type of things to go on? And so this this same that's that same line of reasoning. Why did God allow temptation or the possibility of sin? So we want to understand why why one of the ways we can look at it. So firstly, temptation offers a test of love. So good, could God have created mankind without temptation or the choice of succumbing to it? So theoretically, yes, of course. But such creatures would not be moral. They would be amoral. That is, uh, without any type of morals. Uh, with, they would be robots. Uh, love would be involuntary. There could be no genuine love without the freedom to choose. Love includes both a positive choice and a negative choice. This is what we're talking earlier about. So the putting off and putting on. How does Psalm 97.10 demonstrate that? It talks about that loving the Lord is equated with hating evil. So loving the Lord is equated with hating evil. So there's the positive there of loving the Lord and the negative of hating evil, rejecting evil. Because he desires an intimate relationship with God, God allows him the opportunity to prove his love by rejecting temptation. Understanding the concept, the concept of rejecting temptation explains Jesus' Jesus' test of love in John 14, 15. If you love me, he says, keep my commandments. You'll keep my commandments. John 14, 23. Anyone who loves me will obey my teachings. So in a real way, obedience, one of the things first John talks about what Jesus is talking about here in John 14, that obedience is the mark of true love. Obedience to God is a mark of true love. So uh, it's something why it's an important issue. And this is what we're really trying to get out at this point. Tempta- number two, temptation offers an opportunity for obedience. We typically think of temptation in a, in a negative sense, as an opportunity to sin. Yet it is just as true that temptation is an opportunity not to sin, that is to obey. So we talked about Job. Job offers a tremendous example of the privilege, privilege of being tempted. He says, you know, privilege. Job 1, 1 through 12 talks about and explains why being tempted is a privilege. And it's 
Uh, let me go ahead and just read verses 8 through 12. We won't read the whole section, just 8 through 12, because I think that sums it up. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my, my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God, God and shuns evil. Does, God, does Job fear God for nothing, Satan replied? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the works of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well, then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. So what they're talking about there is it, uh, it's God is giving Job a chance through Satan's temptation to put into practice the things we believe. So putting into practice... Temptation gives us a chance to put into practice those things we believe. To prove our obedience. Notice that Job experienced both senses of temptation. He suffered tremendous trials, as we talked about. Throughout those trials, he was also enticed to sin, most notably in Job 2.9. Job passed both tests. What was his response to trials and enticement in Job one twenty one and 22? It says he did not sin. That is, this is the, the commentary on Job. He says he did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. So his response to, to these trials and enticement is that he did not sin. Job maintained his integrity, yet only Jesus endured temptation without a single compromise. Hebrews 4.15 says of Christ that he has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. The biblical account of Christ's temptation is given in Matthew 4, and we will discuss it later. Jesus glorified God through his temptations in a way that would have been impossible had he not been tempted. Though he was tempted, the statement he makes in John 8.29 was that I, that is Jesus, this is Jesus speaking, I always do what pleases the Father. I always do what pleases Him. And I think that little note there underneath the line is important. Uh, so you may want to just make that mark. Is that being tempted is not sin in itself. Because Jesus was tempted. So we want to remember that. Temptation is not something that we should be... The temptation in and of itself is not something that we should be convicted about or feel guilty for having. I know in my own in my own Christian walk early on, you know, you feel guilty. Why do you have these temptations? Why do these thoughts pop in your head? It's now, of course, it's it's a different story if you you dwell on those things or you you pursue those things in some way. But just the temptation in and of itself is not sinful. So we want to just keep that you know in, in our minds. So number three, temptation offers an opportunity for maturity. So James commands believers to rejoice when they encounter temptations. That is, the difficulties and the temptation of sin that usually accompanies them. Although the command to rejoice seems strange, the reason given in James 1, 3-4 is that testing leads to perseverance, which then leads uh, or works to produce maturity. Testing leads to perseverance, which works to produce maturity. Difficulties are used by the Lord to bring spiritual progress, described as perseverance, endurance, in verse 3, and mature and complete in verse 4. As we, was mentioned earlier, trials are not intended merely to prove you, but also to improve you. 
like a chisel in the hand of a gifted sculptor. So God uses temptation to shape your character. Of course, it's painful, and it's absolutely worthwhile. Romans 8.28 promises that God causes all things, even trials and enticements, to work together for your good if you are a believer. Verse 29, then, goes on to describe exactly what your good is. God's desire for me is that I would be like his son, that I would be Christ-like in who I am. God's desire for me is that I would be like his son. God accomplished his goal of proving and improving Job through temptation. That is, Job viewed the furnace of difficulty as an opportunity for refinement. James 1.12, excuse me, point number four, temptation offers an opportunity for reward. What promise is given to those who successfully endure temptation? That is the crown of life. So when we face, when we see Christ, we'll be given the crown of life. That is, we'll be rewarded for for enduring temptation. At first glance, temptation seems to be an absolute negative, yet believers are able to benefit from temptation. It proves a provides a test of love, provides opportunities for obedience, for maturity and reward, none of which could be realized without it. So temptation exists not because of God's negligence, but because of his goodness. We wanna, I think that's an important point to stress, to think about. Temptation uh, exists because of God's goodness, because of these things that we can actually uh, gain and grow from. Of course, it's hard to see that when you're in the midst of the temptation. So that's it's, it's one thing to say that sitting in the classroom. It's another thing when you're actually being faced with some temptation or some trial that is uh, that you've maybe been uh, enduring for a long time. Some temptation that continues to plague you. Uh, but I think that's one of the ways that we uh, and we'll get this in, in I think it's two chapters from now when we talk about sanctification. Uh, but it's one of the ways that we actually can have success in this life lifetime. So we can't have full success, as we said, and we'll point out in this. We can't completely be free from sin ever in this life. But we can have a measure of success through uh, seeing our temptations, our, our trials, through a correct lens. That is because uh, connecting them back to God. So that's one of the ways that we can do that. If you are to, so next section, recognizing temptation, that is where... As we're working through this, where does temptation originate? Where does it come from? If you are to successfully endure temptation, it is essential that you understand from where it comes. Scripture teaches that there are basically three sources of temptation. The flesh, the world, and the devil. These three are often referred to as the three enemies of the believer. So, number one, the flesh. The response of many people to their sin is, the devil made me do it. Yet scripture teaches that all that not all temptation is from without. When it comes to temptation, uh, you are your worst enemy. And I think this is this is really the big one. You know, it's sin is, is originates in your own heart. You don't need any help from anywhere else. You know, uh, we, we have enough of that sourcing in our own self. James one thirteen through fifteen, uh, verse thirteen teaches that God is not the source of temptation. That is not the source of temptation. Verse 14, temptation comes from uh, your own desires, from a person's heart. It comes from our own heart. 
Scripture teaches that every person that has existed, with the exception of Jesus Christ, was born with a sin nature. That is what the Bible refers to as flesh. In plain speech, that means that we are not sinners because we sin. Rather, we, we sin because we're sinners. Scripture's description of humans is not flattering. Jeremiah 17.9 says that we, uh, we are all possessing of a wicked heart. Possessing a wicked heart. The heart is deceitfully great. So this is talking about, as it says there in the italics, this is the, total, the idea of total depravity. That we sin because we're sinners. Not the other way around. So that's, an, it's, I think, uh, an important thing to think about, uh, to remember. What did David say regarding his, his birth in Psalm 51.5? Says, he says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. He's guilty of sin at birth. He was guilty of sin from from conception. He says, and I, so in understanding that there's a there's repetition there, emphatic repetition. So psalms are poetry. So when he says, "I was sinful at birth," and then he clarifies or adds repetition to to really drive the point home, "I was sinful at birth, sinful from the, the time my mother conceived me," not speaking to the fact that somehow he was conceived, there was some kind of sinful act that he was conceived at. Rather, that he's just speaking to the fact that he was born with sin. Biblical teaching here goes directly against the current of modern thought, whereas sociologists, psychologists may teach that you are basically good. And I think this is the case with most people that you speak with. If you're an unbeliever, and sometimes even Christian, you're basically good, right? We, we all have this... I think, you know, you'll hear that on television shows, whatever, in classrooms, workplaces... Yeah, people are basically good. I think if we just let people, and this is kind of the almost the libertarian way of, way of approaching politics, right? People are basically good and rational beings. If we just let them make their own choices, they'll do the right thing. But scripture teaches that you are desperately sick. Even the godliest of men is sinful to the core. That's a scary thought. The godliest of men is sinful to the core. Romans seven fourteen through 25 there is, is a helpful portion. What did the Apostle Paul say about himself in Romans 7 and these three verses? He says in verse 14 that he is unspiritual. And this is the Apostle Paul, the great Apostle Paul. In verse 14 says he's unspiritual, that he does not, good, that, that there's no good that, uh, excuse me, good does not dwell within him in verse 18. Good does not dwell within him. And he says, what a wretched man that I am, in verse 24. So he recognizes the fact that he is, even in his sanctified state, even as a believer, that he still has this sinful core to him. And so two things. First, Paul was a saved man, as, we, as I just said. Yet he acknowledged his sinful heart and his inability to do right. And if you think about that for a second, it, it, you know, it should hit you. Paul was, you know, we're talking about the Apostle Paul who went out on these great missionary journeys, founded churches, wrote New Testament letters. And this says he had an inability to do right. So in and of himself, on left to himself, Paul couldn't, well, Paul, and by extension us, we can't just do right. And this is one of the things that's helpful to think about as we think about how do we deal with sin, how do we deal with temptation, 
I just need to try harder. I just need to do better. You know, I just need to, to work harder at it. But this is saying Paul can't do right. We can't do right in and of ourselves. So you can't just try harder and, 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 and win this battle with sin and temptation. So that first point, Paul had a sinful heart. Second, he defined his flesh as sin living in me. Every person, the Christian included, has a sinful nature, a sinful tendency, which is bent on doing wrong. And I think as you grow, as you grow in Christian maturity, you recognize that more and more. For every step you make, sometimes you feel like you're being confronted with how wretched you really are at times. Your inability to deal with certain things correctly. Galatians 5 describes a battle which rages inside of you. Two combatants are engaged in a constant struggle that is the flesh and the spirit. The spirit with a capital S. Flesh and the spirit. The Christian has two natures and he will until he is with Christ in heaven. The first is the flesh. Flesh. And as we talked, as David pointed out in Psalm 51, you receive that at birth, at conception. That sin nature. What are some of the acts typical of someone controlled by the flesh? And we can read those uh, in Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Sexual immorality, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, drunkenness. So that's that, that discord one, you know, hatred, discord. You know, when we have problems, that's why I think one of the, it's important when we, when we gather together, any disunity that is being, uh, we have to be careful about because that's the mark of an unbeliever. The second nature within the Christian is spiritual. It is the result of being born again and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And we receive that when we're born again, our second birth. And we all know the well, we should, hopefully you've heard the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 20, 22 through 23. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, self-control. All being this idea of love love of God and love of others. So you're, the fruit of the Spirit manifests its in, itself in a way that you love God and manifest it by loving others. through Love, joy, peace, forbearance, self-control. These are all ways that you show love for other people. Although some churches and theologians teach otherwise, Scripture is clear that the battle between your flesh and the Spirit will continue until your death. Hence, you had better learn how to win it. 1 John 1, 8 and 10 say that someone who claims to be above sin is that they deceive themselves. So someone who says they are without sin or above sin or don't sin are deceiving themselves. And you, if you sat through Dr. Combs's, uh, Sunday, um, second hour that he taught a, about a month ago, he talked about this. This Keswick way of thinking. But one of the things with this battle though, is it's important. This, this battle with sin that rages within us, and this is another thing that we actually can find joy in, because it's a sign of spiritual life. He'll talk about this. I think he talks about this. Uh, no, uh, not here. But it's it's actually something that's good that we can rejoice and be happy about because when you're battling with, when you have this inner battle within you, you only have it because you have the Holy Spirit. If you didn't have the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't have this, you wouldn't have this conflict of sin. You wouldn't feel convicted of it. Warfield, who was uh, one of the Princeton theologians of the last of the 19th century, 
This presence of strife within us is a sign of life and a promise of victory. So a promise of victory is an ultimate victory one day, but it's a, it's a sign of the presence of life or the sign of life. So it's, it's, it is something that we can be thankful for. Finally, top page 91, it is essential that you understand the progressive nature of your flesh's temptation. Achan directly disobeyed God by taking spoil from the city of Jericho following a victory that God had provided. The four steps he took in succumbing to the flesh. In Joshua 7.21, says, I saw the plunder, I saw, I coveted them, and I took them. I saw, coveted, and took them. And he says, they are inside my tent. So he saw, he coveted, and he took them, and then he, he actually engaged in the sin and actually put, took and put him into his tent. The second enemy of the believer, the devil or Satan. The second tempter revealed in Scripture is Satan. Although Satan is often pictured as wearing red pajamas and carrying a pitchfork, the Bible teaches that those who make, a light, make light of him do so at their own hurt. 2 Corinthians 11.14 says that he is a masquerader. He disguises himself as an angel of light, as something innocent, something that you don't have to take very serious. John 8.44 describes Satan in two ways. He was a murderer and he was a liar. He is a liar. The instruction to these descriptions, what instruction do these descriptions provide regarding his temptation? Is that he presents, he's a liar so that he presents us with lies. He confronts us with lies in an attempt to destroy us. John 8 44 pictures Satan as both a deceiver and a destroyer. Similarly, 1 Peter 5 8 compares him to a lion. He uses his cunning and stealth to deceive. His sole intent is to devour you. So Romans 7 11. Scripture teaches that all temptation is an attempt to do the same thing, to deceive and destroy you. No wonder Peter warns you to be alert and of sober mind. Satan detests or he hates you. Thankfully, although Satan is powerful, he is not all-powerful. 1 John 4, 4 uh, reads, You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. The one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. So there's not, it's not this cosmic battle between good and evil. This is a, uh, you know, um, this idea goes all the way back, you know, before Jesus' time in, in these ancient religions, this cosmic battle of good and evil, light and dark. But the reality is that's not how the Bible portrays it. If God is the creator... He alone is sovereign. He's omnipotent. Satan is his own creation. There's not greater is the one who is in us than he is in the world. So God is greater than the devil. It's not a an even playing field. The first instance of Satan functioning as a tempter is recorded in Genesis three, and it says that the certain serpent there was crafty. That is, he was shrewd. That he was cunning. Satan tactics. He first questions God's word. Did God really say? He says to Eve. 
then blatantly contradicted God's word. and will not certainly die. And finally attacked God's character, for God knows. Rather than resisting Satan, Eve conversed with him, sinned, and then was punished. Conversely, Jesus Christ successfully endured Satan's temptations in Matthew 4, 1-11. So what can we learn about the timing of Satan's temptation in verse 2? In verse 2 of Matthew 4, it says that he was hungry. So it came at a time of weakness, physical weakness. Satan attacked, tried to attack Jesus when he was weak. Page top, page 92. What is the essence of all Satan's temptations? That he wants to be worshipped. He wants to supplant God, to replace God. He himself wants to worship. So enemy number three is the world. The third enemy of the believer is called the world. It refers to the system of values and beliefs of unsaved men that is controlled by Satan and is anti-God. So, Romans 12, 2, what is the world trying to do to believers? It's trying to get us to conform, it's trying to get the world to conform them, to shape them into the world's pattern. Romans 12, 2 says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Paul's giving us a command there. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. That conform there is, is, a, is in the passive, it's a passive sense. And so there's this very real sense that what Paul's saying is that left alone, it, you, you actually can uh, subconsciously be conformed to the world if you're not actively fighting that. And that's the world's desire to conform us to the world, to the system of unbelief. The world is described in more detail in John, 1 John 2, 15-16. First, John tells us, do not love the world or anything in the world. Do not love the world or anything in the world. So what does disobedience to that command indicate in verse 15? So if you, if you do love the world, if you love the things of the world, then it, the implication is that you are not a believer. It says the love of the Father is not in them. The one who loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. So you remember, John's trying to give us the marks of a true believer. The things that we can look back on and gain confidence from. Loving the world is one of those things that you is a mark of an unbeliever. Verse 16 specifically lists three lusts that characterize the world. So you probably have heard this before. The lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and pride of life. And then we have this box here. talks about how in Genesis and in Matthew 4, it's the same, that same pattern repeated to Eve and then to Jesus. You are in a perpetual battle with the three enemies, the flesh, the devil, and the world. The stakes in this battle are According to James 1.15, the consequences of yielding to the flesh. Desire gives birth to sin, which gives birth to death. Desire... Sinful desire gives birth to sin, which gives birth to death. And the consequences of yielding to Satan in First Peter five eight is that we are, he says, you will be you are, you will be devoured. 
In other words, you'll be destroyed. And the consequences of yielding to the world are the same. So, resisting temptation. So we'll make a big push here. See if we can get through this. How do you get the sense that your tempters are? Do you get the sense that your tempters are extremely strong and dangerous? You should. However, our God is not only strong; He is omnipotent. Since God has commanded you to be holy and resist temptation, He has provided a way. As a Christian, you no longer have to sin. So, 1 Corinthians ten thirteen describes God as faithful. God is faithful. Although you may feel that your struggle with temptation is hopeless, Scripture does offer encouragement. There is hope. Your struggle is not unique. Rather, it is a common, it is common to mankind. The two promises God makes regarding temptations in 1 Corinthians 10.13, and this is something that we should all have be able to memorize, that you won't be tempted beyond what you can bear. So the first one is you won't be tempted beyond what you can bear. And that God will always provide a way out of that temptation. So those two promises, we know with every temptation that confronts us in every situation, that we won't be confronted with more than we can handle and that there is always a way out. And so the way out that God has provided are many. So the Holy Spirit is the first point there in resisting, the mo- is the big issue there in resisting temptation. We rely on the Holy Spirit, but we're still expected to engage in training for godliness. So the Holy Spirit is the agent that affects this uh, our ability to resist temptation. Your most important defense against temptation is God himself. Remember, if you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit lives in you. As we mentioned earlier, he constantly battles your flesh. The two are fighting over control of you. You must decide whose promptings you will listen to and obey, your flesh or the Spirit. So Galatians 5.16, the promise there is that if you walk or if you live by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. If you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So submitting or following the Spirit, the Spirit's promptings. So, how does the Spirit, how do we, when we, it's telling us to submit to the Spirit, how does that come? Is that a feeling in my stomach? Do I get this inner voice speaking to me saying, you know, I shouldn't do this? Is it a, you know, kind of a mystical thing that I'm submitting to the Spirit? And then he provides us the means here. I wish he would have been a little more clear about this because he says, you know, uh, submit to the Spirit. How do we do it? He directs us to obey God's words. So scripture is the primary means. Scripture is the primary means that we resist temptation. Another important protector from temptation is the Bible. Ephesians 6.17, it is called the sword of the Spirit. It is essential in your battle with temptation. Notice how Jesus Christ used scripture to fend off Satan's three temptations in Matthew 4. Over and over, in verses 4, 7, and 10, he says, It is written. It is written. It is written. He keeps quoting the Old Testament to Satan. So quoting scripture is vital to enduring temptation. It is helpful 
to memorize passages that deal with your particular sin habits and temptations. Some of those habits and the scripture passages that are addressed them are listed at the end of the study. So it's, it's a helpful practice to be, to be memorizing scripture too. And that's part of the renewing of the mind that Paul talks about. Renewing your mind. How you resist temptation. How do you uh, have some measure of success in this life that we we're living with, where we're constantly being battle, you know, in this battle with temptation, battle with sin. Uh, it's the renewing of the mind, mainly through the study of Scripture. Number three, prayer, the spiritual discipline of prayer. A third defense against temptation is prayer. For what did Jesus command? Prayer in Matthew six thirteen and Matthew twenty six forty one. He asked in 6.13, lead us not in temptation. So the Lord's prayer that we often hear called the Lord's prayer, lead us not in temptation. In Matthew 26, it says, watch and pray that you will not fall into temptation. Watch and pray that you will not fall into temptation. So both passages speak to this issue of, of falling into temptation of seeking God for God, for protection against this. Notice your partnership, that is partnership in quotation with God. You are commanded to resist and flee temptation, and you must. Yet, a big yet, you are continually in need of His grace to deliver you from the evil one. Thus, the Christian life is a perfect balance of diligent dependence. Diligent dependence. So it's, it's this working... You know, you're commanded to work, but you can only do it by God's grace. But you have to do it. The fear of God, number four. Yet another defense against temptation is a proper fear of God. You may be confused by the term fear. I think most of us should probably understand, because Ken, Pastor Ken's talked about this in Genesis. Uh, the Genesis we just went through, that is reverence, awe of God. When we talk of fear, it's a proper reverence. And that last line there in that paragraph, the holy God of creation who cannot tolerate sin, he is to be feared. So Joseph demonstrated a proper fear of the Lord when he was tempted to commit adultery with his employer's wife in Genesis 39. He says he cannot sin against God. He doesn't talk about sinning against uh, Potiphar, which he was, you know, directly he would have been doing by sleeping with Potiphar's wife. But he actually says, my sin would have been against God, and I can't do that. Remember, every sin is against God. That realization should motivate obedience. Proverbs 16.6 talks about the fear of the Lord. Uh, Through the fear of the Lord, evil is avoided. So what we're talking about is reverential respect, reverential awe of God will help us in the battle of temptation. A reverential awe... a correct recognition of our sin being against God will help us in our battle with temptation. Fleeing feet. This is, I think, if, you've, if you're familiar with the story in Genesis 39, Joseph there, uh, you know, when he, Potiphar's wife is, you know, physically trying to grab him, he actually runs. He runs away. So physically removing himself from the area of temptation. 
I think this is one of the ways that we, when we how we can understand Matthew 5.29. So let me read that real quick. I know we're just about out of time. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than the whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for the whole body to go into hell. What Jesus is talking about in Matthew 5 and what Joseph demonstrated there in Genesis 39 is that, you know, Sometimes drastic action is needed. And if you need to remove yourself from that situation, you need to do it because there's bigger issues at play. Uh, number six, accountability. And I think this is a big one. It actually, would be, you probably could move it up the list. But accountability. Defense against sin, one of the best, best defenses against sin is accountability. Accountability with others, accountability with your peers, accountability with those that you're in, you've weaved your life together with in this in the church. Spiritual renewal happens in relationship. Spiritual renewal happens in relationship. Ecclesiastes 4 talks about if if either person were to fall down, one can help the other out. So God has provided multiple ways of escape. 1 John 2, 1 on page 95, that blank God's desire for us is we've been hitting over and over that we will not sin. God's desire for us is that we will not sin. But, as he pointed out in the beginning of the lesson, if we do sin, we have an advocate. We have a heavenly intercessor with the Father, Jesus Christ. So, uh, any questions? There's a lot of material. Again, two weeks in a row, drinking from the fire hose. Uh, Any questions on that? You guys probably all... Ready for ready for uh, some time off. So let me uh, close this in prayer, uh, and we'll, we'll wrap up. Our Heavenly Father, we, uh, we just thank you for this important lesson, for the important reminder of the seriousness of sin, of our need to take it serious, of how it offends you as a holy God. But we, we need to also take serious that temptation is all around us. That it doesn't just come from, uh, uh, in, you know, the environment we live in or from the sa- Satan, but it actually originates many of the times in our own heart. Lord, we pray for your grace as we battle sin, as we battle temptation. We pray that you would help us to seek out ways to do so, seek out accountability in community, seek out your word to discipline our bodies, our minds, that we might be more and more Christ-like and be able to serve you in a way that is pleasing and honoring to you. We pray this in Jesus' name.